0: Okay, we are in uh, this series, The Elephant in the Room. I think this is the fifth message, and uh, the question before us today is a really pertinent one. Uh, Who can determine what is right and wrong? Who can tell you what's right and wrong? Who can tell me? Let's go to the Scriptures, and uh, let's uh, read the Scriptures. You can stand with me. And we're going to read from a number of different texts. We'll start in John chapter 10, verse 10. Go to Isaiah, Matthew, Micah, and then to Mark. John 10, 10. This is These are the words of Jesus. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In the prophet Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, That bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. Matthew chapter 6 verse 22 and 23. The words of Jesus. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. The prophet Micah Chapter 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus said, The most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The reading of God's Word. You can be seated. I do have something to report this morning. Um, Something has gone terribly wrong with my Grandson, just look at this video. Leo, hey, what do you have in your pocket? Can you show me? Show me. Show me what's in your pocket. What's in your pocket? Show me. Show me what. It is. So this little man with his sunglasses on. If we played the video a little bit longer, you'd discover that he has his keys in his pocket. In the other pocket, he's got his smartphone. And he thinks he's ready to face life. <laughs> the problem is, over the last few weeks, he's been saying no to absolutely everything. Do you want to put your boots on? No. Should we go to daycare? No. Should we put your jacket on? No. Do you want some food? No. Hmm, yes. (laughs) The only thing he says yes to is food. I wonder which grandparent he took after. I don't want to mention her name. (laughs) Leon's two years old. His thinking, his behavior, it's normal for a two-year-old. We chuckle. But if he is still this belligerent, this entitled, this narrow-minded at at 12, at 22, 32, 42, 52, (laughs) with the same temper tantrums, he's going to have a big problem. He's going to make life really difficult for himself and really painful for those around him. First of all, Leon he has to realize that what he does, what he says, actually impacts the people around him. He can't just do whatever he wants every day of his life. He's going to have to learn to see other people, be empathetic toward them. Secondly, although he's not aware of it, He really doesn't want to live in a world where everyone does what they want. For example, he doesn't want a mother that lets him starve. He doesn't want a mother and father that don't come home after work. He really doesn't want a world where everyone just does whatever they want. What kind of world do we live in today, in Canada? As you know, we live in a pluralistic society. What does that mean? In Canada, we have many different philosophies, different cultures, um, different religions. People have different ways of understanding what is right and wrong. People think differently. They behave differently. This week, I was in conversation with artificial intelligence. (laughs) So I asked OpenAI... What do you think about morality? (laughs) And This is what artificial intelligence told me. There is no single answer to determining what is right and wrong, as it can depend on personal beliefs, cultural norms, and societal values. Some people may rely on religious or spiritual teachings, while others may use reason and logic. Ultimately, It is up to the individual to determine what they believe is right and wrong. And who can argue with artificial intelligence? Well, we can. (laughs) How do we determine what is right and wrong? Is that even possible? Is it truly everyone for themselves? In Canada today, is there any room to hear what God says to the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 5. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. I think it's important to talk about worldview for a minute. In Canada, that worldview that dominates would say that morality, let's go to the slide, that morality and values, well, that's, that's the world of the private, of the subjective, of what is relative. Moral norms are, are private. They're subjective. They're, they're not absolute. We're told that we're free to make choices based on what we believe to be best for ourselves, and that can change with, the way that we're thinking that day, whatever we feel. In other words, what is right for one person is not right for another person. This is where we will hear people say, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Morality, it's treated kind of like uh, musical taste, artistic preference. When we talk about science, however, at least this is the dominant worldview, When we talk about science, we're told that we're talking about what's public, what is objective, what is valid for everyone. Everyone is expected to accept the scientific facts regardless of their belief, regardless of their values. And so, quite often, you'll hear uh, the government saying, we're making this decision based on science, right? Have you noticed how often the government uses science? Of course, my question right away is what is the science that you're looking at? But, anyways, science is thrown out there to make us believe something, to make us behave in a certain way. How does this worldview manifest itself in really practical ways? Well, one of the things that's really common nowadays is hookup culture. And so it is just assumed that you can have casual sexual encounters and walk away from them as if nothing has happened to you, at least not to your person. People should have the freedom to express themselves sexually as they want to whenever they want to. What's that rooted in? Well, it's rooted in something that we talked about a number of weeks ago, a personhood theory. And you can see how personhood theory very easily overlaps that earlier slide when we were talking about morality and science. According to personhood theory, the person is the mind, our consciousness, our autonomy. And that is separate from our physical body. And so what I do with my physical body basically doesn't matter. It's not going to affect my true self. At least that is the thinking. Not only that, sexual preference is said to be core to who I am. So, any restriction on sexual preference is received as a personal attack. If you don't agree with who I am how I define myself and how I live, then you are being hateful. The message is, you love me if you just let me be me and do what I want to do. The sacred value in Canada, to some degree anyways, (laughs) is freedom. The greatest sin is intolerance. The only moral evil is discrimination. Everything is relative. Everything is relative, with the exception of discrimination. Now, you probably already perceive that that series of statements, there's a whole series of contradictions there. Is there room to hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So Jesus says that through the Through the eye, the whole body finds its way. The eye is the conduit of light for the heart. And in Jesus' worldview, heart, mind, body are intimately connected. According to Jesus, we are embodied souls. And so what we do with our physical bodies, yes, it does impact our minds and our hearts. That's the way we've been created and so, when our worldview is good, our way of seeing when it's good, we walk in light. When our worldview is bad, we walk in confusion, in darkness. And if you read Matthew 6, the, the verses that I just read in their context, Jesus is saying that when your worldview is bad, well, then you do live for yourself. You are all about your own glory, you are all about your own name, you are all about your own rights. That's the way you live. Not when you're full of light, but when you're full of darkness. So, how should we respond to that statement that we so often hear? Everyone should be able to just live their their own truth. Everyone should have the freedom to determine what is right and wrong for themselves. Well, my first point is this. Just live your truth. It leaves us in a valley of broken bones. Just live your truth. It leaves us in a valley of broken bones. After all, how can anyone make that claim, that enormous claim, that morality is just subjective? How can somebody make that? It's an absolute claim. One of the deepest mysteries of human existence is our notion of right and wrong. That innate understanding of good and evil. How can anyone say absolutely that there are no moral absolutes? Then if it's true that morality is relative, we have no grounds to condemn any act at all. We have no moral foundation to say that what Hitler did was wrong or Stalin. No foundation to condemn drug traffickers or pedophiles. You see, the fact that we even consider acts to be evil signals that there is a moral standard. Live your truth. It leads to all kinds of contradictions. Those who say that they can just determine what is right and wrong for themselves, they'll turn around and condemn those who pollute the environment, condemn systemic racism, condemn child abuse. On what grounds? And because people live without a moral foundation, without a rational foundation for life, when they find something to be abhorrent, they resort to shaming, to shunning, to punishing, to shouting people down. That cancel culture. That's where it comes from. So opposing views are silenced in the name of moral outrage. And the question we have to ask is, on what grounds? People will say one thing and live very differently. You've probably noticed this, but the bandwidth of moral relativism, it's really narrow. It's usually limited to sexual preference and drug use. But it doesn't apply to racism. It doesn't apply to child abuse. It doesn't apply to the environment. It's really narrow. People speak as if the way that they see things, you know, just live your truth. No, it's a broader understanding of life. And, you know, anyone that would live by the Scriptures is very, very narrow. The truth is the opposite. People may not be aware of it. But when they live according to this mantra, just live your truth, they're actually drinking at the wells of Nietzsche and Foucault. Who were they? Friedrich Nietzsche, he was a German philosopher, 19th century, an atheist. And he wrote this book, Beyond, Beyond Good and Evil. And he said that those who talk about morality are very Wrong. Morality serves no useful purpose. Nietzsche believed that we were just animals. And that we as human beings, we just developed this language of morality and it actually just constrains us. It's harmful to us. And he said that the way to resolve conflicts between people was just the exercise of power. Michel Foucault... He's a French philosopher in the 20th century. Um, many consider him to be one of the fathers of postmodernism, of this whole post truth movement. Um, he denies that, but many understand him that way, and I think he did make a really significant contribution. But he too said that all relationships are based on power. He drank deeply at the wells of Nietzsche. And when we live in this world beyond good and evil, we truly enter into the world of brute power. Those with most power will exercise their will and enforce it on others. That's what happens. And if you ever study the personal life of Foucault, you will see how he lived this out. Because that's what happens. You live out what you believe to be true. So he fought for the decriminalization of pedophilia. He was accused of pedophilia in Tunisia. We live out our worldview; That's inescapable. And so can we hear what Jesus said? If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Nietzsche. And Foucault, they would have loved what is written in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, (laughs) Lord Voldemort's word to Harry Potter. I'll quote, There is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. And so sometimes you read it in children's literature and you don't know where it actually came from. And you begin to absorb it and live by it because it's the waters that you're immersed in. Let's observe a biblical example of power. King David. King David, he uh, saw his neighbor's wife. He lusted after her. He wanted her. And so he used his royal power to bring her into his house. He committed adultery with her, she was pregnant. So then he brought back from war her husband, Uriah. And his plan was that Uriah should have sexual relations with Bathsheba so that David's sin would not be known. When that plan didn't work, what did he do? He sent Uriah back into battle with the explicit instructions to his commanders that Uriah should be put at the front line where the enemy could kill him. And that's what happened. Did David do anything wrong? Wasn't he just following his passions? You see, Just love Your Truth has absolutely nothing to say about that. We have to ask ourselves and we have to ask our neighbors Do we really want the world of just live your truth? Because it will end like the book of Judges. This is the last line of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you read the last few chapters of Judges, you will discover that Israel has become Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's horrific. And the Word of God just screams at us, don't go there. You see, moral relativism is bankrupt. We need some moral standard from which moral absolutes come. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know what is good and evil? Why would we want to live in a world where everyone is confused as to what is good and evil? Wouldn't it be God's grace to us if He revealed what is good? What is evil? Some people would argue for morality uh, based on the theory of evolution. And sometimes you'll hear statements that reflect this way of thinking. Things like this. This is the right thing to do in the 21st century. As if that means something. You know, we're in the 21st century. Of course we're going to do this. Well, why? Sometimes people will say that, you know, we as human beings, we've we've evolved and so we've evolved this sense of, we've come to this understanding of morality and so what we now do is we cooperate a bit more uh, because we know that this is good for the human species. Well, just look at our history. That level of cooperation, it's usually limited to your family, your clan, sometimes your tribe but not much far beyond that. What usually happens is we compete with other people. Sometimes we kill them. That's human history. You know, when we go to the world of evolution, atheistic evolution, building blocks for morality are really hard to come by. They're actually non-existent. So my second point is this, evolving truth just scatters the bones. It doesn't put the bones together in any way. It just scatters the dry, dead bones. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. In 2012, 2012, a professor at uh, Duke University, actually a philosophy professor by the name of Alex Rosenberg, he was answering some questions about uh, philosophy of life and morality, and this is what he wrote. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? Well, what physics says it is. What's the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. (laughs) It's honest. (laughs) Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there a free will? Not a chance. What happens when I die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better (laughs) than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. It's honest. But the truth is, if we're in the world of relativism, morality, it's just preference. The the theory of evolution will never be able to explain to us what is right and wrong. If morals are the product of our evolution then they're always changing over time and different groups of people around the world will have very different understandings of what is right and wrong. One group might determine that child sacrifice is right and good as groups have in ancient history and still do today. And other groups will determine that paedophilia is normal and good. Everything will be relative and those in power will enforce their way. And some would object and say, but, you know, atheists can live good and moral lives. We don't need God to be good. And some would agree with Stephen Weinberg, an atheist, who made this absolute claim. Religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things but for good people to do evil things, well, that takes religion. So, there's a good question. Does religion actually make good people do evil things? I'll say a few things about that, but a really good book to read is this book by Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, She studied at uh, Cambridge, I believe, so, she's written this book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Fantastic book, and she addresses this quest- question. Does religion actually make good people do evil things? Well, not all rigid religions are the same. We need to differentiate. But this claim that religion makes good people do evil things just doesn't line up with the data. There are hundreds of studies that link religious Participation with good moral outcomes. For example, just a few data points. Uh, Those who attend regular worship services are 3.5 times more generous with their money. They volunteer twice as much as the non-religious. So this claim that religion makes good people do evil things just doesn't line up with the data. But... To say that the religious are better than the non-religious misses the point. And also to say that an atheist can live a good moral life also completely misses the point. Scripture teaches us that people can live good ethical moral lives. Look at Romans chapter 2 verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You see, all people around the world have this God-implanted sense of right and wrong, a God-given moral conscience, every human being. We all have these divine notions of justice and righteousness. That's why we're angered when we hear about a person like Harvey Weinstein taking advantage of vulnerable women for decades. So in summary, the question is not whether an atheist can be moral or not. That's not the question we're addressing. The question is not whether religious people are better than non-religious people. The question is, Where has that inner compass come from? Where does this notion of a moral standard come from? And as I have already argued, atheistic evolution has nothing to give us. No moral foundation to guide us. Where might we go? Well, Going to another human being is not going to help us that much. Depending on a group of human beings will not help us that much. Polling the Canadian population is not going to help us that much. Things like, well, this is what Canadians want is actually a very meaningless statement. Maybe it can be used for political purposes, but it says nothing about morality. Human notions of morality, they do shift from person to person, they do shift from culture to culture, they do change with the times and seasons, and that is precisely the problem. We're left with the inescapable conclusion that we need an absolute standard of morality, something independent of us, something beyond us, something higher than us, something that transcends us, something that's personal and unchanging. Who will rescue us from this valley of dead bones? Please hear this if you hear nothing else. The only coherent foundation, the only coherent foundation for moral absolutes is God Himself. Only God's character can provide us with the moral foundation that we need to live. We desperately need God to give life to our bones. We can't do this without Him. In Ezekiel chapter 7, the prophet Ezekiel has this vision of a valley of dry bones. The bones are scattered, everyone's dead. What gives life to the bones? Well, the, the prophet Ezekiel, he begins to speak forth the word of God. He prophesies over those bones. And as he does that, those bones begin to rattle. They start to come together. And flesh is put on them. And God breathes His Spirit into those people. And they live So, in Canada today, is there space to hear the Word of God? What does God say to the prophet Moses? This is Ezekiel chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's who God is. The Almighty God is absolutely good. And He's merciful, not hateful. And He's steadfast in His love. And He's faithful. And He's righteous. And He's holy. And He's just. And He's forgiving. What does He require of us? The prophet Micah asks this question. This is Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him and with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the food of my body for the sin of my soul? Does God demand the ultimate sacrifice, my own child? What's the answer? Micah 6.8 He has told you, O oh man, what is good. He's told you. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God has revealed Himself We are to exemplify His character. Do justice. Do what's right. Love kindness. Be faithful. Walk with God. Walk in submission to Him. Walk according to His will. What an awesome calling. And if we follow His ways, we will live. That's the promise of Scripture over and over and over again. Let's look at King David again. Did he do anything wrong? What was his role as king? Number one, defend his people. Number two, ensure justice for the people. Number three, make sure that the word of God was being taught to the people. Did he do anything wrong? Well, first of all, instead of defending his people, He put His servant at the front lines and had him killed. Instead of doing justice, He took advantage of a vulnerable woman. Instead of of making sure that the Word of God was taught to the people, He rebelled against it completely. Yeah, He did everything wrong. How do we know that? Because God has revealed himself how are we to live a, a scribe came to jesus and asked him the question jesus what is the greatest commandment and this is how jesus answered in mark chapter 12 the most important is hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one and you shall love the lord of god the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor. That goes in the opposite direction of just live your truth. It goes in the opposite direction of just do what's right for you. No, love God with all that you are and love your neighbor And Jesus, of course, will say later, love others the way that I have loved you. I poured my life out for you. See, God in his infinite mercy has revealed himself to us. He doesn't want us to walk in darkness. He wants us to live. And every time that we turn away from him and his revelation, it cripples us. It hurts us. It brings pain to those around us. It it results in spiritual and mental and emotional and physical death. I began with my grandson, Leon. Is there any hope for that little man? Well, God has gifted him with an inner moral compass. Praise God. And his parents will teach him the Word of God. And in the church that they attend in Montreal, he will hear the Word of God. And our prayer is that he will not just hear it, but that he'll come to believe it, that he'll learn to trust the God who has revealed Himself to him, that he will submit his life to the Word and live. God has so much for him. So much. We live in this moral wasteland, this valley of dry bones. People are searching for water all over the place. They're thirsty. Will we share the good words of Jesus with others? Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is a time to humbly and, yes, confidently. Share the words of Jesus. People don't know them. Those baptized today, they were declaring that they found life in Jesus. They surrendered their lives to Him. They're following Him. They've been filled with His Spirit. They've found life, and they want the whole world to know. Every time we come to the Lord's table, we're reaffirming that declaration. We point ourselves and others to the only one who truly lived a righteous life, the only man who ever was truly good. And we remind ourselves that the Father sent Jesus to become one of us so that we might know Him. And Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And in the way that He lived, He perfectly exemplified what it meant to know God, to live in him by His ways. And He was faithful right to the end. He loved us to the end. He went to the cross and He died in our place. He took our sin upon Himself so that we might be made right with God, so that we might know God. So that we might be saved, forgiven, full of life now and forever, the very Spirit of God abiding in us and leading us forward and helping us know how to live in this moral wasteland. We are not alone. God is with us. And as was said earlier, we have one another. And we must help one another discern how to live for such a time as this. As we go to the Lord's table, let's just take a moment to be quiet and uh, remember what God has done.